We've been going through Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the first one. And we have been looking at this epistle in detail because it has so much truth for the people of God today. Now, most of what we have looked at so far has to do with information that Paul had received from individuals, especially what he calls the family or the household of Chloe. Many people believe actually that Chloe or Chloe, some people call them, actually there was a church there and Christians met. Whatever the case may be, he's responding to that kind of a thing. He dealt with schisms in the church, with divisions, because people were preferring one preacher over the other. They didn't have a good understanding of the ministry or the message. He dealt with that in detail. He dealt with the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel. Beautiful passages in uh, the second and third chapter. Then he dealt uh, with the situation concerning immorality in the church. And he gave some strong admonition concerning um, disciplining the individual who will not repent. And that's in chapter 5. And then we came over to chapter 6, the first 12 verses there, or 11 verses, where he deals with the Christians who were taking one another to court, suing one another. We dealt with that last week. And his admonition, hey, that should not be done because it is disgrace, because it uh, causes God to look bad before the angels and so on. He gives some powerful messages there. And as a practical application of that, uh, we are going to try to set up a sort of a forum, a, a um, tribunal or something along that. that. That name sounds a little too scary, tribunal. So I can drive, I'm going to see if I could get it a very highly paid lawyer to uh, give me a better word for that, you know, counsel, counsel, whatever. But we hope to do that as a practical application of that. And so we say to you right now, as members of Calvary Bible Church, if you had, had in mind or have in mind to sue another member of Calvary Bible Church, please don't do that. All right? Come to see us first. Uh, seriously, uh, we believe it's very important because it reflects the character and the nature of God when we do that. Now, we're coming to a section in the book of Corinth where Paul begins to deal directly with comments or questions that were given to him by the church itself. Some say it's the leaders, although we have nowhere in... First Corinthians, where the leaders are specifically mentioned. In fact, many people wonder if there were leaders at, at Corinth because the stuff was going on in Corinth. But these questions and these comments came. And he begins in this passage in chapter 12 to deal with the comments and the attitudes of the Corinthians. And in these verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, he responds to the philosophy, if you want, or the thinking behind the Corinthians' behavior. In other words, they are trying to defend their behavior. And so they are explaining to Paul their philosophy, their understanding of life, if you want, and how it should be lived. And Paul responds to that. So let's 
If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to verse 12. This is Paul's response to the Corinthians' defense for their immoral lifestyle. Now, it's important when you read Corinthians to try to determine or to distinguish what the Corinthians are saying and what is Paul's response to that. All right, because sometimes the way the translation put it is very difficult. So I'm going to outline it in a way, and this is not the time or the place really to go into detail as to how we have come up with this, but I think you will see it as we go along. I will outline it in a way so you will see what they're saying and then what Paul's response is. First of all, then, they have what I call philosophy number one. This is their way of thinking. They're trying to defend now their immoral behavior at Corinth. And the first thing they says, and this is what Paul says now, if you look at verse 12, all things are lawful to me. Actually, this is what the Corinthians are saying. This is their belief. Paul is sort of repeating it back, all right, like a good counselor does. So I put it this way. You say, all things are lawful to me, meaning I am free to do whatever I choose. I have that right. Now, this is still present today, this philosophy. In fact, as you know, we uh, deal a little bit with this gambling situation here in the Bahamas. And this is one of the reasons uh, those who propose gambling give. Say, hey, we have freedom to do anything we want. You have no right to tell us what to do or what not to do. We have the right to do whatever it is we want to do. We have that right. I am free to do whatever I choose. I have that right. Many people live with that kind of attitude. This has to do with your understanding of freedom, as we'll see in a moment. Because not only do we have the freedom to do anything we want, we also have the freedom not to do it. You see, but sometimes we forget that. But now here's Paul's response. But I say, not all things are profitable. In other words, he says, yeah, you may be right. I might be free. You might be free to do anything you want. But that doesn't mean that everything you choose to do is right, It's good, or it's proper. You say, I have the right to do anything. I say that may be true, but not everything you choose to do is right. Not all that you have the freedom to do is good for you. This is another, another one that the people who uh, propose gambling uh, puts up here, here as well. Since I have the freedom to do it, why should you prevent me from doing it? Given the implication, because I have the freedom to do it, then it must be okay to do. And that is the, that is the philosophy that Paul is trying to deal with. He goes on again. All things are lawful to me, but I say I will not be mastered by any. Now, Paul is reflecting now on what has happened to the Corinthians. Because of this attitude, they were actually addicted to a way of life that was not good. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything, meaning, although I may be free to do anything I want to do, I will not allow any of those things to turn around and tell me what I must do. That's what an addiction is. You begin by drinking alcohol. You begin by gambling. You begin taking marijuana because you have the freedom to do it. And the idea that I could stop it any time I want. 
because I am in control. Paul is saying, "Uh uh-uh. Sometimes what happened, that thing that you say that you are master of, turns around and becomes your master. That's what addiction is. The switching of masters. Although I may be free to do anything I want to do, I will not allow any of those things to turn around and tell me what I must do. It will then become my master and not I, its master. That's what Paul is saying to these people. You are using your freedom improperly. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of Bible scholars believe that they have come up with this, because in Romans, Paul taught, and if he taught it in Romans, he must have taught it elsewhere, concerning eating meat offered to idols. Those of you who read your Bibles, you remember that in Romans 14, right? Paul had a lot of trouble with believers who were involved in going to the markets and buying meats that were sold to idols. Now, some young Christians, or what Paul calls we Christians, would say that's wrong. You should not eat meat that were offered to idols. Paul said, listen, number one, idols are not anything at all. They're no gods. As far as he's concerned, he could eat meat because there's no problem. There's no gods. You see what I'm saying? But now he says for the weak Christian, if I realize I might cause another brother to stumble to do something against his conscience, then that's sin on my part, and he wouldn't do it. But he laid down this principle that I have the freedom to do what I desire. Then building on that teaching, it is said, to say, now, Paul, that's what you taught. That's what you taught, that we have the freedom to do anything we want. Paul says, no, no, you're getting me wrong. I'm trying to get you right here now. He says, number one, not everything that we choose to do is right, and not everything that we choose to do is neutral. In other words, it could become our masters. We could become addicted to it. That's philosophy number one. But they had another philosophy of life. Paul says, you say food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. I like that one. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Now, see, this is in the context, remember, Paul is talking about sexual sin. And you have to see that context. So they were saying, sexual desire is an appetite that must be naturally satisfied, just like any other appetite. I feel like hamburger, I'm going to go to the hamburger joint. I feel like pig with sauce, Going to get some pig potatoes. I had some yesterday. I asked for sheep tongue, but they didn't have the tongue. Kong salad. Expecting mothers to know what it is to have a desire for food, a certain kind of food that you shouldn't have. And you want that appetite satisfied. They're saying, hey, that's natural. That's what appetites are for, to be satisfied. That's a way of life. That's the way we are created. Implying, hey, these sexual appetites, desires were created by God, and therefore I must satisfy them. Now, Paul is going to show show that right as far as uh, appetites come, but there must be control. But this is their belief here. 
Sexual desire is an appetite that must be naturally satisfied just like any other appetite. Context. Paul is addressing people who were living in a Greco society, Roman society. And in this society, there was what they call prostitute worship, pagan worship. Sexual activity was a way of worship with some pagan religions. And there was a large one in Corinth where Paul was writing these people where they lived. And it appears that a lot of the Corinthian believers, before they professed faith in Christ, used to attend the pagan worship services, meaning that they used to take part in the sexual activities with the temple prostitutes. And they had both male and female. And that's, you see him indicating that. In fact, we talked about it. We didn't dwell on it uh, in the last chapter, in chapter 5, where they mentioned two kinds, male and a female prostitute. All right? And what is happening here is, it appears that after they made a profession, they still wanted to be engaged in that kind of a lifestyle because that's how they got their appetite satisfied as far as sex was concerned. But now Paul says, but I say, God will do away with both of them. Now that's, that, that scared me. God can destroy my food and my stomach. Now, you mean I'm going to eat up in glory? I don't know. But here's the point. Paul is trying to make a contrast between that which is temporal and that which is eternal. He's trying to make an emphasis between something that God has a purpose for now and something that he has a purpose for forever. So he says... God will do away with both of them, meaning physical appetite is only temporary and will eventually be eliminated by God. We can see that in the next verse, what he means by that. In fact, let's look at that so you can get the close-up here. Here's my point he would be saying, he's saying. Here's my point. The body is not for immorality. See, that's what they are implying. They are implying that because these sexual appetites of being a part of this physical body of mine, then they, it's okay, no matter how I satisfy it. Paul said, uh-uh. The body is not for immorality. And I want you to see the emphasis on body throughout this passage. The body is not for immorality. Now he's making a general universal statement, but... Practically saying to the Corinthians, your body. And we can say here, our body, your body, my body is not made for immorality. But is made for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. It's a powerful statement concerning the value of the human body. And what God, how God looks at your human body. Meaning. This is Paul's meaning here. The body was not designed or created for the purpose of being used for sexual immorality. To use your body, Paul is saying, to these Corinthians for sexual immorality is to go outside of the purpose for which your body was created. The body was not created to be involved in sexual immorality. Fornication is outside of the designed will of God 
Adultery is outside of the designed will of God and the reason for the creation of your body. It's outside of God's designed will. That means you're going to suffer all kinds of consequences. We will see that in a moment. The body was not designed or created for the purpose of being used for sexual immorality. It was created and designed to be used by and for the Lord forever. It's not like food. There's a time when you're not going to enjoy this house anymore. But the body is to be used for the glory of God forever. That's what it was designed for. Paul goes on to show that. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, you have to put bodily in context, because that's always the emphasis in resurrection, the bodily resurrection, not a spirit resurrection, but the body. God has not only raised the Lord bodily, but he will also raise you up bodily through his power. Meaning, God has an eternal purpose for our body. It will not be destroyed, our body. But it will be raised. It will be transformed. Even as Christ's body was raised and transformed, this, I say, shows the value of the human body in God's eternal plan. Now, when I was going through this passage, boy, the Lord really hit me side the head. Saying, Alan, you got to get back to exercising. We laugh, but I'm serious. I'm very serious. You see, we don't put the emphasis on our body the way God puts the emphasis on our body. Our body is actually a part of humanity. Without the body, there'd be no humanity. Do you know that? That's why when Jesus was raised, he didn't leave his body. There's a body in glory right now. A body. The person of Jesus Christ. Do you know that you are not going to be fulfilled as a saved person until your body has been raised and united to your spirit again? Do you know that? That's when everything will be completed. A lot of people like to say, boy, I wish I could go to be with the Lord. Well, you know, that's not my greatest wish, to go to be with the Lord. I don't want to die and go to be with the Lord. Because you see, I got to wait. Right now, we are yearning to be with the Lord. Isn't that right? We all say that. Now, when we are with the Lord, when we go to the Lord, now follow me carefully before you go and say I'm preaching heresy. When we die and we go to be with the Lord, we don't have a transformed body. You know what most of our time is going to be done with the Lord? Waiting for the resurrection so we could receive our new body. When we receive that new body, when that spirit and that body is united again, then that's the fulfillment, the completion of our redemption. 
That's when our humanity will be complete. That will be when we are as human beings what God has designed us to be. The body is important to God. It's vital. And he's going to deal with that in a moment. And we need to take care of it. But especially in this connection, we've got to be careful how we handle this body now. That's what Paul is saying. Let's go on. Paul now takes this opportunity to do what I call a teachable moment. Now, you probably have heard a lot about a teachable moment in the last week with this lady, Shira, what is her name? Gerard. Beautiful teaching about Bible study methods. You know that? Taking things out of context. You want a wonderful illustration? This whole thing, taking things out of context. You do that, you can destroy a person's life, they're saying. When you take something out of context in the Bible, you can do the same thing, spiritually speaking. You can destroy a person's life by taking the context, taking the text out of context. So Paul takes this teachable moment to teach some tremendous truths here. He's just done it with the body, but he goes on. Notice what he says. Do you not know? See, he checks on the... Say, listen, you should know this. You should understand this. You've been a Christian long enough to know what I'm talking about. Don't you know? Implying that they should know. As he teaches fact one. Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Now, we're looking at the Word of God. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at it. Because some of you people, you look up there and you see it. You don't think that's the Word of God. And then see in your Bible. Look in your Bibles. All right? Look in your Bible. This is the Word of God. Talking about our bodies. How we supposed to use it. What it was designed for. Now, who does it belong to? Your bodies are members of Christ. Meaning... Your body is actually a part of his church, his bride, his body. Our body is a part of his body. Now you say, oh yeah, I know that man. That's so good. We have fellowship together. We share one another. All that. But he's trying to show a much more important truth here. Our bodies belong to Christ. Notice the application. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Now you say, well, that's a warning for back then, the pagan worship. That's not for us to, oh yes, every time you commit fornication, every time you commit adultery, as a Christian, you're taking what belongs to Christ and uniting it to a prostitute. In fact, you become a spiritual prostitute yourself. This is serious business here. This is serious stuff here. Paul is giving us truth that is to determine how we live. To make our choices. Choices that reflect 
the will of God in our lives and what we were designed to be and to do. Meaning, when you commit sexual immorality, you actually commit spiritual adultery. Now, in the Old Testament, this was a common uh, symbol, illustration, metaphor that is used. When we are unfaithful to God, when we are unfaithful to Yahweh, we commit spiritual adultery. And even worse than that, you yourself become a spiritual prostitute because you're pimping out your body that belongs to Jesus Christ. You say, boy, that's some ugly words, but that's what it is spiritually. People who commit spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication are spiritual pimps. Paul says, nay, it may never be. This should never happen. Christians do not have the right. You know, we like that phrase today, I have the right. Now, as Christians, you do not have the right to do anything you want to do with your body because your body, and he's going to emphasize it, does not belong to you. That's one of the phrases, of course, the women's lib use when it comes to abortion. I, nobody can tell me what to do with my body. And I even hear Christians say that. Christian women. Nobody can tell me what I can do with my body. Yes, there's somebody who can tell you to do. It's God. And God says, your body is not yours. It is mine. If you're Christian. Christians do not have the right to make such choices to use what belongs to Christ in such a fight. I have the right? No, you do not have the right to use what does not belong to you in a way that the person who belongs to does not want it to be used. You don't have the right. Paul is saying to these Corinthians, you are boasting that this man who was living with his father's wife was still coming out the church, still worshiping and all of that. And you were boasting and you've been so gracious, you've been nice, you've been Christian-like, let them come and not. Paul says, no, no, no. What you're supposed to do, if he doesn't repent, is to put him outside the fellowship of the church. That's what you're supposed to do. You do not have the right to determine what is grace and what is not. Only God has to do that. God says, That's, you're not showing grace to anybody who's living in sin and is well known and their immorality is well known. And you say, well, you know, we got to give him or her a chance because, you know, if you don't, they're going to go someplace else. God says, if that person is living in immorality and will not repent, you put him out of church. You say, but that's not, un that's not Christ-like. Oh, yes. That's what Christ demands. Verse 16, do you not know? Notice again, he keeps saying that. Do you not know? What? And this is the reason, by the way, for what he just said. The one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with him or her. That's what happens when physical sexual relations take place. The two individuals involved become one in a mysterious way. One in a way that you could never become any other way. It's a deeper unity than people realize. 
become one and the same. Here's the biblical basis for Paul saying that. For he says, for he says, as God says in Genesis, and it's repeated several times by Paul in Ephesus and also by Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. For he says, says what? The two shall become one flesh. This is one teaching, one doctrine that so many Christians do not seem to be aware of. The one flesh concept in marriage. They don't realize that this one flesh concept relationship is even greater than the relationship between two blood relatives. It's much deeper than that. The two shall become one flesh. You say, how can you say that? It's greater than blood relative. Well, you know, in the Bible it says when you get married, the husband, I assume the wife too, is to do what? Leave. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is a husband or wife ever commanded to leave the spouse. Nowhere. That is not in the will of God. This is a special relationship. The two shall become one flesh. Now here's the meaning. This was God's initial creation intention. And this is what Paul getting at now. He's getting at the intention for the creation of the body and the bodily desires that came along with it. Why did the designer create the body with those desires? This was God's initial creation intention when he instituted the marriage relationship. Sexual relations between a husband and wife. Now a husband in the Bible is always a male. And a wife in the Bible is always a female. Sexual relations between husband and wife creates a physical oneness that unites a man and a woman in a way that no other relationship can. Now, this is especially realized and enjoyed when the sexual relationship is done in the will of God and there's no fear, there's no rush, there's just entering into the bliss of that moment. I'll never forget when one personal friend of mine got married. And he went on his honeymoon. And he wrote me a note. He said, oh, uh, the glory has come. <laughs> we laugh. But that's how God designed sexual relations to be. See? We've destroyed it by imbibing all the philosophies of the world like these people did. You see? This relation reflects the very unity of the Godhead. Three persons. One God. That's what we believe. Although I must say, there's some Christians who don't believe that. At least professing Christians. They believe in one God, but not three persons. That's called the oneness doctrine. They baptize in the name of Jesus, but not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believe Jesus is God, but when Jesus is here, there is no Son and there's no Father. When the Father is here, there's no Son and there's no Spirit. That's why they could say either one of them is God, but never God at the same time. Do you understand that? Probably a little confused. Come to the theology class and we look. Right? Right, right. 
There's one God, three persons. That's a wonderful unity, wonderful relationship. There's a submission within that unity that reflects divinity. This is why I say to women, husbands, uh, uh, to wives, who, I was going to say wives who are married, but all wives supposed to be married. <laughs> to wives, the most divine thing you can do is to be submissive to your husband because it reflects the relationship between the triune God, the members of the triune God. That's true. That's what makes it tick. It reflects the very unity of the Godhead and shows what God is like. And how did God create Adam and Eve? In his own image and his own likeness. In other words, to reflect him, to show what he is like. That's what marriage is. You see, this is why personally when I go to receptions and people are talking all of these jokes about marriages, I hate that. I think it demeans. Now, I know some of you who do that going to, well, that's too bad. Anyway, uh, I think it demeans marriage. I believe if there's anybody who needs to put marriage on the pedestal that it should be on is believers in Christ. All right? You see? Marriage, the union between male and female made in the image of God is designed to show what he is like. In his essence of his being as a triune God. This is the, marriage is the most wonderful relationship two people can enter into other than relationship with God through Jesus Christ on the face of this earth. The only thing that destroys it is sin. And our desire to do it our way and not God's way. That's what these people were doing. Fact number three. But, verse 17. Here's a contrast now. And you already see but in Bible says a contrast. It's not a comparison. It's not similarity. It's a contrast. This is different than what he just said. But the one who joins himself to the Lord. Now I want you to see the spiritual Truth here. You remember, Jesus says, this is eternal life, what? That they may know. See that word, know? That's a very important word. It's a very intimate word. Remember the Bible says that Adam knew his wife? It's talking about a personal, intimate relationship. Not here, but an action. A relationship. That's what's spoken of here. When we say yes to Jesus Christ, we are joined with him. We enter a personal, intimate relationship spiritually with the triune God. We become one. But we don't become one in the flesh. We become one in the spirit. See the contrast? Physical relationships, one physically. But this relationship with Jesus Christ, and we become members of Jesus Christ, it's a spiritual oneness. This is one of the reasons why we say when we talk about whether Christians should marry an unsaved person, we say they, it's impossible for them ever to become one spiritually. Why? Well, if you believe in the trichotomy, uh, spirit, soul, and body, Let's go with that right now. If you come up to Talios, we go into a little deeper for it right now. 
a Christian can enjoy physical relationship with a non-Christian. They can have physical relationships. Even a soul relationship could be established. They can enjoy the same things. But a Christian and a non-Christian can never unite spiritually. Why? Because the unsaved person's spirit is dead, out of contact with God. You could look at many marriages like that, and you'll see wonderful things happen, wonderful relationships, except for the spirit. Never could become one in spirit. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The one who becomes a Christian is spiritually united with the triune God. Closeness of relationship is brought into being, is established. Meaning, the union of a believer with Jesus Christ establishes not merely a physical union, but a spiritual one. One that unites the believer's spirit with the spirit of God. Now notice the context that Paul is talking about. A person who is a member of Christ takes that body, which is a member of the body of Christ, and establishes a physical union with a prostitute. Here's how Paul applies it. Verse 18, flee immorality. In context, flee sexual immorality. Flee fornication. Flee adultery. Meaning, Christians must run away from every kind of sexual immorality. We should always practice what I call the Joseph syndrome. Run. Run. Don't say, man, I'm a strong Christian man. I don't care. I could look at that. I could do. Mm-mm. You run. You turn around and you run. Flee immorality. You must run away from every kind. Don't embrace it as these Corinthians were doing. And then glory in it. I remember several times, and I'm sure Pastor Anna could probably share the same thing talking to a man who's unfaithful to his wife. He comes in, he says, Pastor Lee, you don't know that woman. Man, she always gets headache. She never, never wants to satisfy. Never. And she's rowdy. She's this, she's that. And he says, you know what, Pastor Lee, and this, these very words, Pastor Lee, I believe God is pleased with the woman I am having sex with outside of marriage because my needs are being met. That's what these were arguing in one sense. Fact number four. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the sexually immoral man or woman, sins against his or her own body. Self-infliction. It's a a tremendous principle here, but let's move on here. This is the meaning of this. Sexual immorality is the only sin that impacts the very spirit of a believer. 
our inner being, our core, who we really are. That's why in the book of Proverbs, it says when they said, you know, although adultery and fornication can be forgiven, the marks of it will never go away. Never. It leaves a stain that's always there. Not mean it isn't forgiven, because it can be, thank God for that. But there's a stain that always exists, and that's the only sin that is said to do that. The sin of fornication or adultery. It defiles and contaminates the core of our being and destroys the purity of our communion with and worship of God because it desecrates his holy temple. These bodies of ours would see in a moment the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within. And when we use it in that fashion, the way God has not designed it, we desecrate it. And we could come and we could look pious. We could join the praise team, the choir. We could give our tithes. We could give our offering. We do all that. But God does not look at your offering or takes or your worship or receives it. Because you are worshiping a desecrated temple. Look at what he says. Do you not know? Notice that again. There's six times in this passage, the whole chapter. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? He's saying, for God's sake, you believers, you should know this. And if you know it, it should guide your life. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, temples in this context was made for worship. Those who lived in it were the priests who offered that worship. He's using that image about the body. It's a temple. The Holy Spirit lives within it. And he lives in it to offer worship to a holy God. How dare you, Paul is saying to these Corinthians, desecrate God's temple in which the holy, holy, holy spirit lives. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Fact number six now, teachable moment. Don't you know that you are not your own? You are not your own. In context, he's talking about your body is not yours. But you say, it's your body. Yeah. But it's not yours. Alone. Belongs to the triune God. The Holy Spirit lives within it. Who offers up on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, worship to God the Father. That's what we were created to do. Be a holy temple offering worship that is acceptable to God. You're not your own. Your body is not yours to do what you would like with it. It belongs to God. It belongs to God. It belongs to God. It belongs to God. How do you know that, Paul says? Because you've been bought with a price. You've been bought. We have bought people. He purchased it. And what was the cost? The cost was the blood of Christ. Listen to these amazing words. 
Please read this with me. It's on the screen. Knowing. Our bodies, keep it in context, were purchased with the blood of Christ. Pure, holy, spotless blood of Christ. That's why it doesn't belong to us anymore. We do not have the right to do anything we want with it. To choose to do anything we want. We do not have that right. God doesn't give us that right. So I say to you ladies again, Watch out how you use that if you're a Christian and you talk about abortion. Don't buy into the philosophy of the world. Application number three in this passage. Therefore, and this is what Paul was leading up to. Therefore, what do you do with your body? Glorify God in your body. Glorify God. That's what the body was made for. To glorify Him. And He gives us specific instructions how to do it and how not to do it. And way, one way not to do it is to commit fornication or adultery. Sexual immorality. That's the context of this passage. Now this is important as emphasis on the body. Because when we come to chapter 7, boy, we can come to a hard passage. I know the women especially are going to run me out of church when we come to this one. Let me read it to you, ladies. No, I want, listen, the man too, mind you, but uh, here's the passage we can look at next week. Now, concerning the things you, which you wrote, it is good for man not to touch a woman. We can explain what that means. But because of immoralities, sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise, also the wife to a husband. Now, in context, his, his or her duty means sexual relations, satisfying the spouse. Four, the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Woo! Likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Woo-hoo! Stop depriving one another. Look at that. Start, really, in the English Bahamian translation, start, start teething from one another. But when we read this, we must read it in the context of the passage we've just studied. To glorify God in our body. Paul tells us, the husband and wife, how to... Glorify God with our bodies in the marriage relationship. But time is gone, and so we say, Sila, think and act on these things. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that the seed of your word and your word alone might be implanted within the hearts of the folk here, my own heart, and causes we pray, our Father to be obedient and submissive to your word, especially in relation to the truths that we discuss, so that we might truly glorify God in our bodies, which is his. And all of God's people said, Amen.